Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the Literacy Lab. It's an organization with a new program engaging young men of color serving as early childhood educators. Also, the state capitol is buzzing this week as candidates qualify, officially qualify, for upcoming primaries and other races. We'll tell you who's in so far and who's not as we check in with our WABE politics reporters. Those conversations coming up. But first this, speaking of politics, George Governor Brian Kemp says he's ready to take on everyone he feels is standing in the way of being reelected. Today inside the Capitol and after officially qualifying, Kemp was flanked by supporters and family. And basically he said, here we go again. But make no mistake, the road ahead will not be easy. The media, Hollywood, and the elites will be against us again. But you know what? They've come for us before. And together, we have stood strong and won. And I'll promise you this. We are not taking one single thing, one single vote for granted in this race. And speaking of elections, Georgia voters can now request an absentee ballot for the May 24th primary election. Again, Sam Greenglass explains how. Any Georgia voter can cast a ballot by mail. To request one, fill out an absentee ballot application on the Secretary of State's website. You can mail, email, or fax it back, or drop it off at your local elections office. Under Georgia's new voting law, you'll be required to include a personal identification, like a driver's license or state ID number. If you don't have that, you can include a copy of a valid government photo ID. The deadline for requesting an absentee ballot was moved up by the new law. The last day to request one for this primary is May 13th. And don't forget, the ballot itself has to be received by the county elections office by 7 p.m. on Election Day. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Hope y'all got that. Now we'll hear more from our politics reporters, Sam and Raul Bally, in just a moment. In other political news, though, the Georgia House is condemning Russians, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calling on President Biden and Congress to do what they can to end the war. Georgia House Speaker David Rostin says such a resolution may not have a big impact, but Georgia needs to take a stand. I cannot begin to fathom what Vladimir Putin is thinking of or why he would commit this kind of atrocity. But today we will call him out for the tyrant that he is and condemn his actions and those who willingly follow him. He is a bloodthirsty tyrant who deserves condemnation and not words of praise or cheers. You'll note... resolution has bipartisan support. Rostin also praised the spirit of the people of Ukraine. If you've tried watching the nightly news lately, and if you react as I do, your stomach has been turned upside down by the haunting images of children crying, walking along with their families, if they are lucky, to escape Putin's war. I want to add here my admiration for the Ukrainian people for standing up and defending their nation. Now, Georgia already directed the State Employee Retirement Fund to shed any Russian investments. There's also a bill that would ban state government from investing in any Russian-backed companies. Martyr officials say the first bus rapid transit line could begin operating in Atlanta's Summerhill neighborhood by mid-2025. The line mainly runs along Hank Aaron Drive. It will include 16 stops, five electric buses, and will connect to three rail stations in the area. 
Project Manager Greg Holder says the majority of the five-mile loop will feature bus-only lanes, meaning a faster ride. That would be more inviting to somebody because then taking a regular bus and waiting 30, you know, however many minutes, but if you got this coming every 10 minutes, you'll be more prone to, yeah, jump on it and take it to where you got to get to. That is true. Construction is set to begin in about a year. And finally, another day without an agreement between Major League Baseball and the players means more games have now been canceled. So what's the newest date for opening? April 14th, we think. Join me now with more about all of this and making his Closer Look debut from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Braves beat writer, Justin Toscano. Justin, welcome to the program. Thanks, Rose. I really appreciate you having me. This is a big day in your career. Are you excited? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited and I will be even more excited uh, at some point when we can talk about games. Absolutely. You know, Justin, so here we go again. I'm a big sports fan. I'm from the greatest city with the greatest sports team, which is the St. Louis Cardinals. But here we go again, a sports <laughs> a sports league, and the players can't agree. And for our listeners who say, well, Justin, just tell me, give me the kindergarten version of what the problem is. Yeah, that's that's a good question because <laughs> that's all most fans want to hear, right? Uh, there's so many nitty-gritty details. But the basic version is this. The players in the last collective bargaining agreement felt it was so skewed toward the owners. So now they're not caving. They want higher minimum salaries. They want a higher competitive balance tax threshold. Basically, they want the economics of the sport to shift more their way. And then so they're trying to fight and then get a lot of that back uh, in this time. I know it's probably not the kindergarten version. There's so much to this, but... Um, the players don't want to cave because they feel like the owners got the best of them last time. And is this a case also, too, where the players and, and their representation will say, this really isn't about the big folks, the Tatis and the, and the fellas that are making a whole bunch of money. It's for the guys that are on the lower end of the salary scale. Is that what we're saying? Because, look, when you have a 10-year, $325 million contract, which some do, um, you can argue well, were y'all hurting? But it's for the players who are not making that. Is Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely, yeah. And um, I think that's the way Major League Baseball has almost divided the union uh, in previous years throughout history is because so many, you know, the majority of Major League Baseball players aren't millionaires. The league minimum, as it was last season, started under 600000 So um, a lot of work's been done to, to try to get that up as as high as they can. And then the pre-arbitration bonus pool, which would give extra money to um, the top earners who were before arbitration, uh, before three years of service time. So a lot of this is being done to help the uh, the lower levels of, of paid players, the lower salaries um, of paid players. Like, cause like you said, players like Tatis, like Francisco Lindor, like Bryce Harper, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they can fight as much as they want, but the truth is it's going to hurt. Um, it's going to hurt the fringe minor leaguers uh, more and the guys who maybe aren't uh, aren't the highest paid players. And so you the assessment is absolutely right, is that there's a lot of work being done is so those the, the lower levels, for lack of a better term, are being more financially supported than they have been. So they don't have to be fringe guys. Let's then talk also about how this impacts the the draft. Those young players who who sign, a lot of them will sign a a, a minor league contract. They'll sign with the, the franchise, but you know, again, it's minor leagues. But listen, you and I both know, playing in the minor leagues, you don't make a whole lot of money unless you're a big, huge signee. But you you know, the life on the road for a minor leaguer is is it's only exciting when you play the game. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the effort to take care of players with under three years of service time in the majors uh, has been so strong is because those minor leaguers who aren't represented by the union, they're, they're still going to suffer with the salaries they make. Minor league conditions can get better, but that's not something the Major League Baseball Players Association has control over because they only represent players on 40-man rosters. Mm-hmm. And But once those minor leaguers do make it to the majors, look, a guy getting there for the first time you want to make as much as you can, especially because baseball free agency, you have to reach six years of service time to become mm-hmm. a free agent. And in any sport, as, as you and I know as sports fans, that's that's tough to stick around for six whole seasons and then be at your peak value to, to earn the most you can. So it, there, there's really been a push 
to help players earn more earlier in their careers. And a lot of that being so crucial because the minor league conditions are so bad uh, mm -hmm. because they to use a cliche, do it for the love of the game. Mm -hmm. um, as disgusting as that sounds, because they don't make a lot of money. They don't make a lot of money, and they're per diem. Back in the day, I remember interviewing a guy named Razor Shine about this. He said, look, we got $14 for meals, <laughs> you know, on a bus that barely had air conditioning. So it, it is not luxurious. For folks who may not understand this, Justin, when, when we have a lockout, what does that mean for the players? They don't have access to facilities. Does it also mean that their health insurance is is sort of suspended? In a way, yes. So they they um, could get that through other avenues, as I understand, because I don't think um, that. But but what would be affected when it when a lockout is implemented by owners? It's an owners implemented lockout, uh, so the players had nothing to do with this. But the owners implemented the lockout, so the players couldn't strike. What that means is that the players now can't use team facilities so in a way the health insurance the, that all is affected mm -hmm. because if you are an injured player you can't go see the team doctors mm -hmm. you can't go to, to team facilities you can't um you know ronald acuna jr couldn't show up here at cool today park to to rehab they mm -hmm. can't have contact the team cannot have contact team employees can and in any facet cannot have contact with players who are on the 40-man roster, whether that's a star like Ronald Acuna Jr. Mm -hmm. or um, maybe somebody like Drew Waters who was put on the 40-man roster to be protected um, from the Rule 5 draft. And so, yes, that that gets thrown into limbo and they're having to find other avenues. And a lot of those players maybe have, you know, personal trainers or people they, they can go to or, or resources to get there, but it does really affect the lower-level 40-man players who, you know, are only making – we're only making the league minimum um, – because they now they can't use the team facilities, so they are locked out from them. You know the, the very most literal sense of the term. And this also means we will not have a grape grapefruit league, no preseason. If this newest date for opening is April fourteenth, are the are the teams are the players going to be ready? Yeah, so they will. It's it remains to be seen how they'll do that. Uh, in my eyes, they can go a couple of different ways. They can do an expedited spring training, expedited grapefruit league schedule. Um, down in Florida once they get here and um, this this would be the likeliest option to me another option that's unlikely but perhaps they could think about is just doing it in the home ballparks of mm -hmm. the 30 baseball teams like they did uh, to get ready for the pandemic season in 2020 however I think if they come to an agreement within the next few days there's enough time to get everybody down to spring training get them all ready um, pitchers are really the spring training is a lot of people in the game think that spring training is too long as, you know, as is when it's at yeah. its normal length and, and pitch, but pitchers really need it to ramp up. That said, pitchers these days, um, as you and I both know, aren't going seven, eight, nine innings no, they're not. Uh, a very, very often and, and certainly not out the gate. So they're going to need less time. And then they're still working out and, and ramping up on their own stuff that was tougher for them during the pandemic season. So they should be ready. There should be enough time to get them, uh, get them ready and with the april 14th opening day looking at statement yesterday mlb didn't use the word canceled so it yeah. seems like they, they could maybe preserve that braves home opener on april 7th potentially or, or maybe push it back a little bit there seems to be some wiggle room there based on what they need to get ready and let me ask you this as we wrap up justin if we get all this worked out and we have an op opening day in april uh will freddie freeman be in a braves uniform <laughs> <laughs> that's so hard to answer and i don't want to uh yeah i don't want to get skewered for having it wrong but i think I, I do think there's a there's a solid chance he will be because i think he's spent so much time in the organization and that's just that's just my feel look braves official right now i don't know justin about, boy i tell you can't talk about uh, yeah should. they can't talk about players and that's just my personal feel as somebody who saw the situation from afar Never had to report on it. That's just my gut feeling. But look, it's going to get scary for Braves fans because once you don't extend somebody, once you don't lock them up, you you allow other suitors to come into the picture. But I think he's uh, I think he's too important for Atlanta for him to get away. Yeah, the St. Louis Cardinals will take him. We'll put him in the lineup. He can bat. <laughs> he can bat fourth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, I think uh, there are 29 other teams saying that too. All right. Making his Closer Look debut from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution Braves beat writer Justin Toscano. Good conversation, Justin. You, you, you passed. 
You did great. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Rose. I really appreciate you having me, and it was an, it was an honor and a pleasure. All right, come on back now. Will do. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We're less than a week away from crossover day. It's a major deadline at the state capitol. Now, legislation that hasn't made it through at least one chamber, either the House or Senate, generally has a low chance of final passage. But we've seen some wackier things happen before. That means things are pretty busy under the Gold Dome. On top of that, it's qualifying week when everyone running for office in Georgia has to officially declare their candidacy. Lots to talk about with our WABE's politic reporting dynamic duo, Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass. Great to have you back, guys. Hi, Rose. Great to see you on a Thursday this I week. I know. Did you enjoy the baseball talk? No? <laughs> yes? <laughs> My grandpa was a Boston Braves fan pre it coming to Atlanta, so I have a little bit in my blood. All right. Now, before we get to it, this, go ahead, Raul. And, and, and folks, trust me, at the Capitol, they are still... They'll still talk about are the Braves going to come down to the Capitol? You know, they, they everybody you know wants to see them. That conversation really came back when Kirby came with the UGA trophy. So, well, we got to get a team, the official that can play first. But before we get to legislative news, let's talk qualifying news. We uh, mentioned anyone wanting to run for any office in Georgia had to go down this week, sign some papers, plunk down some money. Uh, describe the atmosphere. What's it like when qualifying week is just days before crossover day? What's it like? Well, I'll just I, say I, this was, oops, sorry, Roll, go ahead. No, I want Sam to go first because this was his first. I want to hear, I really, I've enjoyed watching Sam, watching what's going on. <laughs> it's a so, rite of passage. <laughs> I had a total blast at the Capitol this week, and it, this might be because I'm kind of a democracy idealist nerd, but it was so cute to see candidates on both sides of the aisle lining up to do this very basic function of democracy, which is to put their name on the ballot to run for office. I mean, you saw people with their families, supporters who were wearing t-shirts of the campaign, uh, people trying to take selfies with the candidates, taking pictures on the Capitol steps, proudly showing their paperwork that they had just filed. It was just really this nice moment that kind of reminds us why we are all here covering this thing in the first place. <laughs> Raul, what do you want to add? It was the circus, and it is a preview of what we're going to see for the next couple of months. It was a circus uh, with Stacey Abrams. It was completely packed for Governor Kemp earlier today. It's, it's you know, uh, the crowds following Herschel, the mm -hmm. crowds following any number of people. It's, it's going to be something. It's like being there a – go ahead, Sam. I was just going to say, uh, talking about the crowds, there was a moment when leader Stacey Abrams came through and crowds basically tailed her from the minute she walked into the Capitol all the way to the door where she signed up. And I was saying to Raul, I think I'm going to need a longer fishpole for my mic if this is how the crowds are going to be all campaign season long. I mean, she was just mobbed with people from the moment she walked in. Now, have all the so-called big name candidates officially qualified? Any surprises in terms who's yet to show up? Not at the moment. I'd, I'd have to think that through, but most of the big names that we were watching for have, have filed. I think we're keeping an eye out for any surprises. I've got a handful of lawmakers who've been kind of quiet about what they want to do. Mm -hmm. uh, one that did announce yesterday is State Representative Rebecca Mitchell from Gwinnett County. She went ahead and uh, she announced that she was running. And the reason that's important is she got drawn in with another Democrat, Shelly Hutchison. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a Democrat on Democrat race. That was one that we were waiting to see an answer on. 
Um, a couple others, uh, Patrick Witt, who was running in the 10th congressional just east of here in Atlanta, he switched races. He is, he's now running um, for, why am I blanking? Uh, I believe insurance commissioner or labor commissioner. Mm. I think it's insurance commissioner. And, and, um, no, well, and so he jumped races. Um, yeah. And a couple others. Yeah, very interesting. And since, I'm just curious, since Mark Butler has made his announcement that he is not seeking another term, is there any buzz about who might be the front runner in that? Or are the Democrats going to try to bolster somebody to run in that race? What are you all hearing? Um, on the Republican side, it's very clearly Bruce, Bruce Thompson, who had already announced that he was going to challenge um, in that race. And, you know, from everything I can tell, he's been putting in a lot of work in that race. He's laid down the groundwork to challenge Mark Butler. I think Bruce Thompson, uh, I think, becomes the front runner. Um, because, you know, he was, you know, he was basically running um, beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, over on the Democratic side, you did have some people who had already lined up. William Bodie, who's a, a member of leadership mm -hmm. uh, in the House, then State Senator Lester Jackson, uh, who was already running. And then Nicole Horn, who's better known in middle Georgia. She used to be a television reporter in Macon. So mm -hmm. um, she's she's another Democrat. So You've got a couple of strong Democratic candidates, and then you've got a really strong Republican candidate in Bruce Thompson. And again, every legislator's seat is up for grabs. Some may not have a viable opponent, but you never know. Now, I want to get to Governor Brian Kemp because he had a lot to say today regarding his gubernatorial election bid. Right, let's take a listen. But make no mistake, the road ahead will not be easy. The media, Hollywood, and the elites will be against us again. But you know what? They've come for us before, and together we have stood strong and won. And I'll promise you this, we are not taking one single thing, one single vote for granted in this race. Uh, media in Hollywood, he must be talking about y'all. <laughs> he has been using the word national media more than ever, just instead of just media, mm -hmm. so... That's that's one of the things I've noticed when he when he does mention the media. I mean, and I'll say, too, I was at a Second Amendment rally last week that Governor Kemp was at, and he kind of framed this race in a similar way, like outside pushback to the abortion law that was passed in Georgia, to the voting rights bill from national politicians, Democrats, media. He was kind of framing this as a fight against those forces uh, that will come along with some of these other bills like permitless carry that are being uh, pushed by Republicans this session. Well, and Kemp is speaking as if he indeed will win the Republican primary. That was so noticeable because no mention of, of David Perdue or former President Trump um, during his speech. We did ask him afterwards, uh, and the only thing directly he talked about was was Rivian and just criticizing um, uh, uh, former Senator Perdue about attacking the Rivian project over in East Georgia. But he absolutely it looks like he's just looking ahead to Stacey Abrams, where David Perdue, who we talked to yesterday when he qualified, he was both attacking Stacey Abrams and attacking Governor Kemp. Hmm. Well, any are you all hearing in terms of the former president, Donald Trump? And he, obviously he's going to be he has an influence. We know that. Uh, but Kemp, mm -hmm. you're right. Raul Kemp doesn't necessarily mention the former president by name. He, you know, he's very strategic about that. Yeah, he's he's not going to attack the president. I mean, there's there's I, I think the question is, what do you gain politically from from attacking the president? You know, I think he's going to continue with. With two lines. Number one, I've always supported the president and what the president does. And on the other thing, I can't worry about what the president says. I think those are going to be the two common lines. But we're already hearing that at the end of the month, we're already going to get our first rally with the former president. I'm hearing that's going to be in Augusta at the end of the month. So we're going to see the former president uh, sooner rather than later. Wow. Go ahead, Sam. And I was just going to say, I think this primary will be an important test, not only in Georgia, but for the rest of the country on how much an endorsement from former President Trump matters. I mean, remember, he has backed uh, David Perdue. So uh, I think a lot of other uh, watchers around the country are going to be looking to this race to see how much that endorsement still matters. 
Well, and once again, Georgia is considered a, a very key state and call it a battleground state, if you will. So we shall wait and see. All right. Let's talk about some legislation news here. We know the mental health bill being pushed by House Speaker David Ralston took a major step forward this week when it passed in a majority vote in the Georgia House. Uh, so what are we watching for next as this moves ahead? So, as you said, it did pass earlier this week. Overwhelmingly, the vote was 169 to 3. It was it was this. It was a statement. The bill is now in the state Senate. It will get its first hearing in the state Senate on Monday. Let me lay out now kind of what the concerns that that are being discussed. Number one, it's called protecting the definitions in the bill. And here's what that means. How you define mental health care and mental health disorders and how you define substance abuse is important because those are the definitions insurance companies are going to use. If those definitions become too narrow, everything gets rejected and nothing gets covered. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's kind of the big conversation around that. Law enforcement, and you guys have heard me talk about this before. Mm -hmm. I talked to some of the uh, lobbyists uh, with law enforcement today, and they're still concerned. What do you do after a situation is de-escalated, a mental health crisis? Who's responsible for transportation? Okay. Is it a law enforcement officer? Is it an ambulance or someone else? Also, when do you take someone into custody during a mental health crisis? When they're naked outside when it's 20 degrees? Or do you take them to custody if they're screaming on the corner? When do you take them? When do you take their rights away? When do you do that? And the last thing, do you mandate or do you the whole idea of co-responder teams, law enforcement and behavioral health professionals working together in the field. Is that going to be mandated or is that going to be something that, hey, if you can afford it, do it? So those are a couple of the things that are being discussed around this bill. Might this then, when it gets to the Senate, uh, be modified? They want that language more more defined, clearer? I, I have always gotten a sense that the state Senate is more law enforcement friendly because you have former officers in law enforcement in there. I think that there you're going to see some changes in language there. I'm not hearing as much about the insurance companies. The insurance companies, they're, they're lobbying. They're trying to soften up the language, change language. They're raising their own concerns. Hey, you want us to deliver these services, but do you have enough providers mm-hmm. for us to deliver these services? They're, that's one of the things they're talking about, law, uh, the insurance companies. So th- those are the things I'm going to be watching for. I I do see changes coming with the law enforcement portions um, with the bill, and we'll see what happens. Sam, you know, one okay. thing. Oh, I was just going to tag on that one thing Ralston said at the end of his uh, comments on the floor this week is he addressed the Senate directly, and he said, "I hope that you will think twice before nitpicking or trying to take the, apart the work of this bill." So he's mm. very directly trying to anticipate any backlash or changes that are going to come in the Senate of what they think is a very carefully crafted piece of legislation. Oh, interesting! I absolutely believe that if the Senate goes overboard with 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 changing that bill that you could see the speaker take something out that is a senate priority hmm. you know so he he there you know there are going to be battle lines drawn off on this if if things happen with the bill that that the speaker is not on board with and other supporters are not on board with Mm. Sam, I want to move to you for a second. Let's talk about the, some state lawmakers' efforts to regulate conversations about the R word, race, in schools. What's the latest here? So last week when we talked, I think the House had already passed one of these so-called divisive concepts bills. Uh, now we are here about a week later. The Senate is preparing to take up their own version of this uh, tomorrow, actually. Um, but there has been some changes to this bill uh, as it's moved through the session. Uh, the biggest really is that higher education is now out of both the House and the Senate versions of this bill. So just K through 12 schools now, uh, these bills will apply to. And also gone are the consequences that that would withhold state funding from mm-hmm. districts that don't comply with the rules. Um, the Senate bill, I think, would still withhold waivers that are given to districts that allows them to say, like, for example, have a bigger class size than the maximum. Uh, but Republicans are likely to get a version of this bill signed this session. It's just not as expansive and maybe without the teeth that they had originally hoped mm-hmm. for when they started this session. Well, and the reality is, the reason the university system of Georgia has been taken out of these bills is First of all, it, the University System of Georgia is, is really considered a separate body. Not It's not really an agency. It's really a separate body. And that was going to be problematic for lawmakers. And number two, it's this idea or the discussion point that 
that college students are adults. Mm -hmm. And so if they take a CRT class, well, that's their choice versus, you know, K through 12, they're looking at differently. Well, and they don't teach critical race theory. (laughs) If I say this one more time, I'm going to explode. Nowhere is critical race theory taught in K through 12, but that's just me giving the information. You're right. And the bill, I guess, outlines A through F of what they're calling divisive concepts is their workaround to not mention, I mean, critical race theory is not mentioned in either of these bills that we're talking about. They've kind of outlined some other definitions to kind of get at that concept. (laughs) That's my chuckle. Uh, Republican lawmakers also taking aim at social media platforms. Tell our listeners what this is all about. So the idea here is to regulate these platforms like they're common carriers. And that's like a telephone company or a cable company. And basically the aim is to make it harder uh, for Facebook or Twitter to remove posts or users that the platform deems to be sharing misleading or false information, for example. Uh, You know, just for some background context, Republicans have pressed this issue as Twitter and Facebook have booted uh, politicians like Donald Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene Mm -hmm. uh, for spreading false information about elections, about the pandemic. The thing here is, though, that the law as it is now views social media platforms as private companies that can choose what speech they want to broadcast. You know, when we talk about First Amendment rights, that prevents the incursion of the government on free speech, not Mm. uh, of companies. So this doesn't mean that the government can tell a platform what to publish or not to publish. Uh, Similar laws have been passed in Texas and Florida. So Georgia is not the first to try something like this, but the courts have blocked almost all of them saying that they violate the First Amendment. So this might get signed, but there's certainly uh, the potential for legal challenges ahead. Interesting. Now, in some re- in recent days, we've seen some action on this measure, and I want to be very clear that I, I explain this for our listeners, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, because that's what you're supposed to do, is a measure targeting the homeless or those unsheltered. It would criminalize people for sleeping outside or setting up what they call urban encampments. It's, it's a weird terminology, but whatever. What's happening there? Does this bill have a chance of going anywhere? So our colleague Stephanie Stokes has been all over this story, so I will try and do it justice. Um, But basically what this bill does is it makes it a misdemeanor charge for anyone who sets up camp on public property. Now, one thing that Stephanie was really trying to to make clear is that this is already illegal in the city of Atlanta. Um, There was lots of pushback from Atlanta lawmakers at the hearing about this bill this week, uh, which has the biggest population of homeless people in the state. Uh, They said they were not really, their input was not consulted uh, when bringing this bill to the floor. And as far as where it's going to go next, a pretty similar bill was introduced last year and it didn't go anywhere. Um, This bill actually almost died in committee this week. It was at a 5 p.m. hearing, so not enough Republicans. Yeah, I heard there was a a lot of drama that happened there. That was word on the curb, Sam. There was a lot of drama that happened in that hearing committee and it was pretty much going to be a dead measure. But I think what happened is they were able to call some Republicans back to have enough votes to push it forward, uh, whereas it almost looked like it was going to fail. And I think a lot of people who had been lined up to speak about it had actually left because it looked like it was going to fail. So, yeah, definitely something to watch. But in the past, it has not gone very far. As mentioned, we're just under a week away from crossover day. What are you all watching between now and then? Raul? Um, Going to definitely keep an eye well that that would be after um keeping an eye on the the tax bills yeah um obviously one of the tax bills that want to get done is is the 1.6 billion dollar one-time tax credit uh watching that move quickly um considering the state budget is almost done that money could be in your pocket in my pocket you know within about six weeks after it's signed uh also keeping an eye on the bigger tax reform package this is going to get rid of a lot of deductions and then combine those with exemptions and then raise it to 12,000 for single filers to 24,000 for, uh, uh, for married folks and then lower the tax rate, the state income tax to 5.25%. Generally it's, it's going to, it, it's supposed to lower taxes on most Georgians. Mm-hmm. Obviously we've seen some analysis saying, no, you know, the, the most of the, most of the advantage is going to go to richer folks 
that debate's going to continue this week on the, basically those two bills that I'm going to keep an eye on. Uh, want to just take a moment because you all have received, well, it's not your first time, but I have a listener with a question that says, what about the remote online notarization passage? What's up with that? That's with the notaries, right? Online? That's a great one. I have not checked in on that bill. I mentioned that bill a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I will go double check. I know they were working. They were still working through some issues. Uh, the big concern is, is this. If you allow electronic notarizations, mm-hmm. are these big corporations from outside of Atlanta come in, sweep in, and take up all that business? Yeah. You know, because I can go get a notary at you know mom-pop business. They charge a couple of bucks. I think that's one of the worst. And then again, the whole idea of a notary is it's secure. Sure. How do you make sure it's secure when it's online? Mm. All right. Sam, what are you going to be watching between from crossover day? What are you watching between now and then? I just want to raise one uh, bill that's gotten a lot of attention in the last two days that we still don't know a whole lot about. Um, It's this legislation that is kind of similar to this very controversial law in Florida about discussing sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms. Meaning you can't Uh, say the G word, gay. It's I can't quite tell if that would actually be the case with this legislation. Again, it's it's been proposed in the last day or so. We don't really know a lot about what this would mean in practice. This is getting thrown in right under the wire. You know, as you mentioned, crossover day is really soon. So it's probable that it won't go anywhere. And again, this would only apply to private schools in Georgia. Um, But, you know, some Democratic senators have expressed worry that this could easily be spliced into some other education bill that has already moved through Mm -hmm. one of the, the chambers of the legislature. And even if not, it is something that we will probably hear about on the campaign trail and maybe it'll crop up again next session so we're was, keeping at least an eye on was what the lawmaker said you know it probably won't go anywhere i just want to get the conversation going that's sure what he said raul bally sam greenglass our wabe politics reporters recapping the recent week of action at the state capitol as always good information thank you both thanks rose and last like you can apply for an absentee ballot now send your app in look at you Helping the people. (laughs) And Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. You know, often on this program and, of course, on most credible news outlets, we provide statistics to support and even strengthen the reason why we're doing a story or segment, right? And we should. So think about this. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, by three years of age, keep in mind now, three years of age, there is a 30 million word gap between children from the wealthiest and poorest families. That's the center's wording. And then think about this. 34% of children in this nation entering kindergarten lack the basic language skills needed to learn how to read. So I want you all to keep all that in mind because here in Georgia, there's a new initiative to help underserved pre-K students learn how to read. It's a pretty unique initiative. We'll talk about that. The Literacy Lab's Leading Men Fellowship Program, and it's through a partnership with Greenlight Fund Atlanta. Join the program to share more details. Jolie Cooper, founding executive director of Greenlight Fund Atlanta, and Julius Cave, veteran educator. That's a nice way of saying you've been around a long time. And the program manager for the Atlanta Leading Men Fellowship Program. Welcome to you both. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. Jolie, let me start with you. Those statistics that I gave, none of that is lost on you. None of that is lost on me. And you know what? We don't need numbers to know what's happening in our community. You talk to the community, they're going to tell you what's happening. So when we at Greenlight look for opportunity areas to invest in, we listen to the community and they tell us where the opportunity is. And this is how we knew where to go out into the, out into the country and look. And that's how we found Literacy Labs Leading Men Fellows. Julius, what about you? Numbers? You didn't need those numbers to tell the story, huh? No, no, but they, they are a part of the story and they're, they're very real numbers, right? And so that's why programs like uh, Leading Men Fellowship exist to uh, address those numbers and, and support our, our, our brilliance and the genius in our children so they're set up for success. Jolie, for listeners not familiar with Greenlight, let's give them a little bit of backstory here, how long you, you all have been around and basically what you all do. 
Absolutely. We were founded in Boston in 2004, and we are in uh, 12 sites around the country. We launched in Metro Atlanta in 2019, and we are an investor, and we invest in innovation. So we listen to the community about where there are opportunities to complement the local ecosystem in a priority issue area, and then we go out and we find innovation, and we import that innovation. We don't bring in things that are duplicative or competitive, and that's what we love so much about leading men fellows. There is not a program like this in the community, and uh, we're so excited by the opportunities. Well, Julius, let's talk about this program, the Literacy Labs Leading Men Fellowship. What is it? What's it all about? Yeah, so the Leading Men Fellowship, as uh, we alluded to earlier, is a focus with pre-K students on developing uh, literacy skills. We do that by placing young men of color ages 18 to 24 in those classrooms, specifically to focus um, on working with students and developing those skills. So it's it's that dual focus and dual mission, right? The the pre-K students, um, but also for, for young men of color who may not have considered a career in education um, or currently looking at, at opportunities to, to place them and give them this, expose them to this opportunity as educators. Jeez, let me ask you this. Why did you become an educator? Why this path for you? Yeah, yeah. So um, I come from a family of educators, uh, mother that, that taught for over 30 years and and grandmother and aunts and, un- and, and uncles that were involved in the education space. And so for me, it was something very early on that I, I saw and was a part of my life. And then it stuck with me. It's something that I felt that I was I was called to do. And I uh, became sure that as I, I tried other things, I tried to get away and it, it tugged and, and, and pulled me back. And so um, I can't get away from it. I'm, I'm in it for the long haul. And it's, it's enjoyable work that's, that's meaningful um, for me and others. And I, I'm going to allow Jolie to answer this question, too. But, jo- Julius, when we talk about the importance of having a teacher of color in the classroom for specific students, specific populations, for underserved communities, take our listeners through why that is so crucial. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, broadly speaking, you know, we want to have a, a diverse educated workforce that, that is there that is representative of, of students that are in classrooms. And, um, you know, for us, something that really stands out and, and that really we come back to is uh, results from a Johns Hopkins study in 2017 that basically said that students in, in, in early education, or early elementary um, dropout rates are reduced by 29 percent when they have one black teacher. And for black boys in particular, that rate is reduced to 39 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, college increase in, um, goes up by 29 percent. So we talk about reducing dropouts um, as well as um increase in college interest. I mean, those numbers are, 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 are huge. And we're talking about one black teacher in the classroom. Hmm. Jolie, what do, you, what do you want to add to that? You know, when we were looking at investing in bringing um, the Literacy Labs Leading Men Fellowship to Metro Atlanta, I had the opportunity to speak to mothers of some of these children in other markets because they are in different cities across the country. And they said that their children would were so eager to see someone that looked like them, to see a strong role model for them. It just, it moved me. And we know that matters, whether it's in your house. And then to see these young men talk about the influence they have on these babies, it's it's a win-win. It is truly uh, a two-generational approach to educational equity. And often we hear that when you talk about why it's important at an early age, for obviously kids, uh, you know, to, in, in terms of reading or what other, uh, any other discipline. But we also know the statistics around as they continue on. Like I read something, I think it was about in fourth grade, there was, there was a maybe 64% of students, if they haven't, what they consider have a basic, I guess, a acceptable reading level by fourth grade, it's, it's even worse. I mean, you think kindergarten to fourth grade, you think there's a lot of time to help kids, to get them on a path, to improve their reading. And then by fourth grade, we have this 64% in terms of students from underserved communities. That's a huge number. That's mind-boggling. Maybe it's not. It is. No, no, it is. It is. Um, and, and that just, it continues to speak to, you know, the work that, that must be done um, and, and at, at all levels. And so for us, right, it's saying, yeah, we know that and, and what's expected of students even a little earlier, third grade, um, in terms of being able to read, we got to back it up some. So we have to have students prepared with those basic skills, the ones that we take for granted as readers now, we have to prepare them so that they are set up um, and we can reduce that number significantly. Well, Julius or Jolie, how then would you recruit 
these young men, these these educators, these, these young men of color to to come into the program to, to at least apply for the fellowship. What's that process going to be like? I will let Julius answer that, but I but I did want to you know highlight when we talk about you know the impact. We know we know that there's a direct correlation between incarceration and low literacy, and when you look at prisons and how they know how many prisons to build. Unfortunately, it is based on the literacy rate of young black boys in the third grade. Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that's it. It plays out in a a myriad of ways and and impacts our society. You know, we talk about reading, but it's something that that just crosses over and has a huge impact in, in, in a number of ways. So the question about recruitment, um, you know, one, we know that we're exposing uh, a number of young men of color to this as, a, as an opportunity. So one thing that we talk about are the benefits. So for one, it's paid, right? It's $15 an hour that the young men receive. Also, we know that some are thinking about college. And so $2,500 education award that they can receive uh, for t- participating in the program. Um, we provide transportation and communication stipends. Uh, we help them with next steps for careers. We um, also do a uh, lot of training and, and support around professional development, uh, top, cover topics like financial wellness, um, health and wellness, and, and are just seeking to really build a community. So for, for us, it's saying, hey, try this out, um, take a look at this uh, program, and, and here's the, the variety of benefits that we're going to provide in order to support you uh, in this experience. And um, also, it's an online application um, that folks can go ahead and, and go to our website, theliteracylab.org, and check out. I want to go back to something that Jolie said, because I want to make sure that our listeners are, are, are understanding where you got this information from. You said that the construction of prisons, correctional facilities is often determined by the some nation's... Will say it's an ur- some will say it's an urban myth, but okay. some say it's true. So... So let so let me clarify in terms of the source of that. Oftentimes, it's said an urban myth, but when you look at that um, fact, some say it's true. Because so. we do know, and you're right about we do know that in our correctional facilities that we know that the 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 literacy rate we know that that's not very high. We do know that. So I just wanted to be clear. I want to give you an opportunity to cite your sources because that's my job. I have right. to do that. I can't let you just come Absolutely. on here and say anything. So. No, absolutely. And I should not have said it without a source. So I will retract that. But there may be some truth to that. All right. It is an urban myth and it is oftentimes quoted and stated. Mm-hmm. But we do know that we're going to help our pre-K, our little ones, learn how to read. Okay. Read better. Right, Julius? Oh, that's right. Most definitely. No question about it. And this this is a new yeah. program. This is not nowhere is this program mirrored anywhere in the nation? This is going to be kind of unique here in the Atlanta area? No. Julius? Yeah, so we have um, sites, so the Leading Men Fellowship, and, you know, just speaks again to the process for Greenlight, looked at us, it it exists in other cities around the country. Mm -hmm. As far as right here in Metro Atlanta, no, this is a a new and and, and different program here for this this region. And then, Julius, if you can, and Jolie, you can jump on this as well, making the connection that folks understand when our pre-K kids are on that path to, to, to learn to reading, how this is so instrumental in helping them, not just through first grade, second grade, but it, it really has an impact all the way up from K through 12. It really does. Absolutely. High school graduation, you know, which, of course, you know, correlates to opportunities for jobs and careers and preparedness for college. Um, it, yes, it is. It is all correlated. It is all correlated. Julius, I have a connect. listener. <laughs> See, I, I can always tell a good segment, not that they all aren't good, but the emails come in. A listener says, well, is there an age limit and, and who can join the program? Yeah, so our target right now is uh, 18 to 24 year olds. Um, recent graduates with uh, from high school or have a high school uh, equivalent, uh, so GED, um, and do, and currently do not have a bachelor's. But if they have an associate's degree, um, that that's fine. And you all will help train them as well. Yeah, yeah. So part of us is, you know, we want to, as thinking about diversifying this educated workforce, we want to encourage young, young men to, to continue after the fellowship um, and stay in education. And so 
we provide supports around that, what those career options look like, how they can do it, and, and just continue to go forward from there. And how will you all track the success of this? Will, it be, will you have to follow these little ones, you know, for a certain number of years? That's a great question. When we look, and Julius can speak to the details, but when we looked at investing in um, the Leading Men Fellowship, we only invest in evidence-based models and they will measure the reading proficiency of a pre-K or the beginning of the year, the middle and the end of the year. Um, Julius, you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. Thank you, Julie. We, we um, measure where students are at the beginning, um, the middle and the, and the end is at end of the year, excuse me, and it's less about the testing per se, but to see where they are and see where they've grown. And so, um, you know, just to throw this out there, one of our last um, complete years of data um, pre-COVID, 87% uh, of students grew toward kindergarten readiness from fall to spring. Wow. Um, and yeah, so that, those, those are the kind of numbers that we're, we're looking forward to, to having in Atlanta as well. And will you all partner with any school districts or this is just going to be region-wide? Yeah, so we're starting actually, um, so for this year, we'll have 20 fellows participate in our program. Um, some of those will be in Atlanta Public Schools, so we're already working with them to identify the specific sites uh, where they will be. And then we're also um, doing the same with uh, Sheltering Arms and, and their network. Um, so we have some some great partners uh, lined up. I tell you what, I love reading to, to little ones. And so if you ever have a public, if you have a program with, for public radio hosts, uh, count me in. We got Definitely. it. We got it. Yes. Definitely. One thing I did want to mention, though, um, this program has been quite successful. It was founded in Washington, D.C. in 2016 mm -hmm. and is also existing in Baltimore, Richmond, Milwaukee. And we're launching it in uh, Cincinnati as we speak and also Phoenix. And they will all, when I say they, all the fellows from around the country will be in Atlanta in August to kick off their school year and get trained. So we are excited to host 120 plus leading men fellows. Wow. We'd love to be a part of that and just, you know, report on that or have you all stop in really appreciate it jolie cooper founding executive director of Greenlight fund atlanta and julius cave a veteran educator and the program manager for the atlanta leading men's fellowship program we'll be talking about a multi-generational literacy intervention program that places black men tutors in pre-k classrooms you ought to film that too that's gonna be fun thank you both for yeah. taking the time i really appreciate it yes, thank no thank you, you so for much. having us we appreciate you and all you do And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel are our other producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email because y'all love to do that, even at 3 in the morning. Rose at WABE.org. You should be sleeping. Also, if you missed any of today's show, it's online at WABE.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And we have a podcast. Why not? Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.